This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 6, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, it isn't just George Zimmerman who is under suspicion. The so-called stand-your-ground law is also a suspect. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He argues that the stand-your-ground law, especially Florida's version of that law, is not properly implicated in any popular narrative of how that shooting occurred. Zimmerman is claiming self-defense, and uh, he is claiming self-defense in a way that fits into the Florida law and indeed fits into uh, other states' law too, which is uh, uh, the law requires a reasonable fear of uh, death or serious bodily injury, and it requires that the lethal force uh, used in self-defense be necessary uh, to prevent that uh, uh, lethal force from happening to you. And, but a lot of people have claimed that uh, this implicates the stand your ground laws. Now, what are the what are the terms that 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 present uh, a circumstance in which one might reasonably expect it to quote unquote stand your ground? There are so many misconceptions, and I have to say that the press coverage from the very first stories about the Trayvon Martin case have fostered these misconceptions and have misled the public because the stand your ground law does. Uh, a bunch of different things, uh, but only a couple of them are even possibly relevant to the Trayvon Martin case. And uh, first look at the standard for what is self-defense. Uh, that uh, It is reasonable fear, uh, unreasonable fear does not count, of uh, uh, death or personal, uh, serious personal injury that can only be averted by uh, using force. That was misrepresented in hundreds, even thousands of articles where people imagined that just some sort of subjective, oh, I'm afraid and therefore I have a right to shoot. That's not at all what the law says. And every day uh, there are people trying to assert uh, flimsy self-defense uh, cases in Florida courts and the police uh, rightly ignore them and the judges rightly say, you know, off to jail with you. Uh, it is not an easy defense to assert. So that's part of it. The real core of the debate over Stand Your Ground is over something called the duty to retreat. And this is not a new debate. This is something that has been going back and forth in Anglo-American law for hundreds of years. And uh, it was also not the case that somehow or other there was an American rule of uh, you had to retreat, which the uh, evil gun lobby came along and began reversing in 2005. Uh, the law professors have studied the history of it, although it's gone back and forth. At any given time, uh, you know, maybe half the states would uh, Im, uh, be swayed by the duty to retreat, uh, which is definitely the rule in some other countries, places like Britain, where there's much longer tradition of deference to the constabulary, as they might put it, uh, where uh, there was much more of a uh, historical tradition that uh, the king was in charge of defending you and that your job was just hand over the issue to the king. That was not the American tradition, and that's why uh, – <clears throat> When the issue came up, again, it was nothing new about the um, uh, idea that the duty to retreat was uh, – there was something wrong with it. Let me explain how the duty to retreat worked. The idea was that even if you had a case of self-defense that was completely legitimate in every other term, you genuinely were in danger of dying or, 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 or mayhem, uh, it was uh, – uh, you had not started, and, and we'll get to that in a minute because it's an important uh, issue. Uh, but uh, 
you were on trial for this. If the prosecution had made out a case that you had a clear chance to retreat in safety, uh, even though you had done nothing wrong whatsoever, and even though the person was genuinely attacking you in a criminal way, uh, they could get you and they could send you away for you know the very long terms that are involved in murder. Now, <clears throat> the duty to retreat came under attack uh, in a number of different ways. First, uh, it was felt very widely and in many, many states that uh, you weren't doing anything wrong by just standing there. If you were in a public place where you had a, a right to be in, uh, Eugene Volokh, professor at UCLA, has had a wonderful analysis of this in which he points out that people can avoid uh, being attacked uh, in a variety of ways. They can say, uh, you know, they can hand over their wallet if that's what's demanded. They can say, oh, uh, you're right, I apologize, if an apology is the only thing that stands between them and an assault. And the law doesn't require those things either. The law only requires you to do things that uh, involve re respecting something that the other person has a right to. If the other person is saying, get off my property or I'll attack you, the law does require you to do that if they have a right to order you off their property. So the question is, are we trying to avoid violence by giving aggressors, giving people who are threatening violence, the right to uh, demand something that they don't really have a right to demand of us, whether it be our wallet or whether it be our retreating from a public space. So the, the answer again and again, and long before 2005, was uh, no, in America, uh, if it's a public space, we have the right to be there. And that's why the uh, law was so popular, that, that aspect of the law, and has spread so quickly in other states is the basic fairness of it. Now, anytime you have a rule of self-defense, you're going to get uh, tough cases and troubling cases on either side. And uh, so let's look for a moment, because in the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin shooting, the press pointed out that there were tough cases on both sides. There were cases where the uh, claim of self-defense was hard to refute, especially where it was homicide and there wasn't another witness. Uh, and that could genuinely make life harder uh, for prosecutors in cases where uh, you know, the person's story you know, could be doubted. And at the same time, there were people who had been going to prison before who had very plausible cases of self-defense, who were losing only because of the retreat theory. And uh, it is probably a strong advance in fairness for some of those people uh, who had only been in the wrong place when someone was trying to attack them and, and who thought fast but didn't think through everything prosecutors <laughs> believed they should think, uh, for them not to be sent off for long jail terms. One other uh, part of the lead-up to the law, which was really buried in the press coverage, uh, that very few uh, articles mentioned it, is that feminists had played an important part. Uh, feminists had urged a reconsideration of self-defense cases in which wives had turned on husbands who had battered them or who had been uh, threatening them or going to their place of work uh, with a weapon. And the uh, those cases often fit into a pattern of, well, yes, she could have run, and uh, but should she be convicted when she did have a legitimate fear, when he definitely had attacked her and started it, could the fact that she could have you know, found a back door in her office and run away, uh, was that really a reason to convict her for uh, defending herself against her husband? And uh, <clears throat> the whole feminist history of it kind of went down through the memory hall when it suddenly became framed as a liberal versus conservative, oh, these awful conservatives have passed these laws they must be responsible. The way the standard ground law has been portrayed, it is as a, a flimsy pretext to commit violence against somebody else. When in, in your description, 
it is to define a sphere of uh, personal autonomy where at some point we we don't need to uh, retreat from legitimate claims of our own self-ownership in a way. Let me also say the Florida law, and this is typical, was very careful to carve out uh, a um, uh, realm of uh, protection for those who did not start fights. And they were, uh, put in the concept of provocation. If you had provoked, and that could be verbally too, but if you had started the fight, you got no benefit from what they were trying to do. Uh, indeed, you were sent back to a particularly strong version of the old duty to retreat. Uh, and that, again, showed that they were not just trying to create, I mean, it's always called a Wild West atmosphere, but, but they, they were not, in fact, thoughtlessly uh, empowering people to um, aggressively go out and be vigilantes. Uh, they realized that sometimes, uh, whether verbally, whether through aggressive physical gestures, uh, but in various ways, uh, people uh, can wind up starting a fight and then having to use use self-defense later in the fight. And they didn't want to protect those people in a way that they weren't already protected by, by the law. So you can see the application to the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman case, which is according to virtually every version of it from uh, the Trayvon Martin family and its lawyers, Zimmerman was an aggressor. Zimmerman had provoked the confrontation. Zimmerman had started something that didn't have to lead to violence. Uh, accepting their case, uh, Zimmerman loses any benefit from the law without even having to get to later issues. And um, the law is also irrelevant at best from Zimmerman's position uh, because uh, according to Zimmerman's own uh, version of events, uh, there was no opportunity to retreat. Before he knew it, uh, he was in a clinch. He was being beaten up. He was uh, rolling around on the ground uh, with Trayvon Martin. Now, the uh, old law, the duty to retreat law, uh, itself tried to be reasonable by saying that uh, it, you were not going to lose self-defense unless you had a genuinely safe route of retreat. And that uh, applied the, – the whole duty to retreat only applied, so to speak, at the last minute, at the point at which violence was imminent. It did not at any point the, – the old law never said that Zimmerman uh, had some duty not to trail around in his car, had some duty not to, um, uh, you know, be on – uh, even foolishly, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the exercising what he thought of as, as vigilant. Instead, the duty to retreat uh, kicked in at a point at which violence had become imminent, and then it asked, was there a clear route to retreat? So accepting Zimmerman's story, he couldn't be claiming, uh, it, or the prosecutors couldn't be claiming a duty to retreat. So uh, whichever side you believe, and probably if, if the truth is somewhere in between, stand your ground is not going to change whether Zimmerman is guilty or innocent. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.